You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on April 1st, 2022. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for Kids and Others. Um, I'm sorry to miss last week, but I'm back this week. I'm happy to try and take um, whatever questions I can about uh, any topics in science and technology. We have a number of questions that got asked uh, from our form and other things. So there's a question here from Eli about thoughts on longevity research and feasibility and um, a variety of comments about that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about how long things live. You know, in one feature of, of us humans is we tend to live, you know, uh, on, on average 80 something years, whatever it is in the US, it's different amounts of time in different countries, different situations. Um, but one feature is that if you look at the chance that we die in each successive year, it goes up dramatically as we get older. We talk about why that happens, but that's not true of all species. There are some species where, uh, including some plants, for example, where the probability of dying actually goes down as you get older. That doesn't mean you live forever, but it means that if you're a certain kind of tree, you know, maybe a redwood tree, I'm not sure about that, um, there could be things that are kind of wrong with the redwood tree that will cause it to die in its first few years, couple year, two years, whatever. But if you make it out of that period, you're probably a redwood tree that has sort of everything more or less set up right. And then you can keep growing for a thousand years and you'll just keep sort of, uh, and nothing will go too badly wrong. Now they're also, uh, what is it? The um, naked mole rat, I believe, uh, is an example of a, an organism that, again, an, an animal, uh, even a mammal, that has this feature that its probability, the probability that it dies in a given year stays, I think, constant um, throughout its life. So if, if the probability of dying in a given year is constant, it, it still means that eventually the, the, the uh, let's say there's a 1% chance of dying each year. That means that there will be, on average, it, it will be, it will live 100 years. But it means that there is a, if you look at, uh, let's say, 1,000 different individuals, it means there will be some that have this sort of tale of living much longer than that because they happen to, you know, every year it's like you flip a coin and there's a 99% chance of surviving and a 1% chance of dying. And if you keep flipping the coin in the living side each year, you can just keep going forever, so to speak. So the question for, for us humans is, okay, that's kind of a bad feature that the probability of dying seems to increase actually exponentially. It kind of, the, the probability goes up uh, um, uh, every, the probability of, of dying of some cause 
goes up, it kind of multiplies by some factor every year. I think that stops being the case. If you make it past 100 or so, then the probability actually goes down a bit. And that, that is, it doesn't, it doesn't keep going up um, uh, at that point. So what, why does this happen? Well, it's not really totally clear what causes aging in general. And some people think that aging is just something that's built into us as biological organisms as a feature of something that is kind of intended for the benefit of the whole species. I mean, the basic thing is if, if kind of the, the, all the individuals of the species lived for a really long time, you'd have all these curmudgeonly old characters who said, you know, when I was young 200 years ago, this is how things worked and the world should never change. And, um, uh, you know, uh, the, all these resources that might be used by the eager young critters, the eager young humans, um, would be being used up by the, the 200, 300 year old humans. Now, as, a, as an old human myself, it seems like it seemed like a much a, a good deal if um, uh, the us humans could kind of uh, live indefinitely long. But in biological evolution, it could be the case that perhaps there was a um, uh, uh, that perhaps in the in the past there was the possibility of living much longer um, that was selected against because it actually was bad for the species to have everybody just kind of hang around, so to speak. Now, uh, the actual mechanics of what causes aging, I think I've talked about this a, a different time as well. Um, there are a variety of different theories about what mechanically causes aging and to what extent uh, there, there are a variety of different kinds of things. For example, our uh, as, as we get, we're continually producing new cells and every new cell we produce has to kind of rerun the program from the DNA to produce proteins and to make the structure of the cell. And there is progressive buildup, perhaps, of errors in that DNA or other kinds of problems with the DNA um, that mean that as we go on and we live longer and we've replicated cells more and more often, that the chance that we have a bad program, so to speak, to represent the new cells goes up. So one of the things that's sort of implicated in that is at the at the ends. So we have 23 chromosomes, and um, uh, the at, at the ends of those chromosomes, there are uh, end caps that kind of keep the two strands of DNA. DNA is this double-stranded molecule that has the sequence of of essentially bits that represent how one should the elements that one should assemble for the proteins that are the molecules that we use, um, and the, whenever we make one of these proteins, we read a little section of the DNA. That section might be uh, a thousand base pairs long. It might be a few million base pairs long. We're kind of transcribing that piece of, of code to actually make the, uh, the structure of the protein out of a sequence of amino acid units that are sort of uh, assembled together in a line to make the protein. Okay, so on the chromosomes, there are end caps on the chromosomes that stop the strands of DNA from kind of coming apart. They're called telomeres, and they are repeated sequences of, uh, I forget what they are, ATT something, I forget what, what the actual sequence is, but it's a, it's a progressively repeated sequence, maybe repeated 50 times or some such other thing. 
And every time cells replicate, maybe on average, we lose one element of that end cap. And so eventually we've lost all of them and then the chromosomes can't sort of maintain their stability and start peeling apart. That was kind of a, a theory from a while ago of what might be sort of a core feature of aging. Um, it's not quite as simple as that because there are enzymes, chemicals that can actually add those end caps to the end of the DNA. And so it makes it, um, uh, it makes it, um, uh, uh, and, and when we like exercise and do good things to ourselves, that enzyme potentially is active and potentially adds elements to the ends of the DNA. So it isn't really the case that every time the DNA replicates, it loses one of those end caps. So that theory isn't quite right. Another theory which has been, I think, is, is uh, there's, there's sort of increasing interest in is about methylation of DNA. So in standard DNA, there are these different units, these different bases. Each base is a, is a clump of a few tens of atoms, and there are ones that the A, T, C, and G are the letters that are the kind of acronyms for the names of the, of the chemicals that correspond to those bases. And uh, what when we make up a DNA molecule, we are having a sequence of those units all glued together. Okay, so there's this process called methylation that is a modification to those bases. And I think for a couple of those bases, more common to happen than for the others. And that process adds some atoms, rearranges some atoms in that base. The fundamental structure of the base is still the same, but it's had some modification made to it. And in um, uh, the thing that, um, uh, that those modifications seem to be important in determining, for example, uh, which genes will be activated and, uh, and kind of uh, and how that will work. And that process of methylation does get passed down as you replicate the DNA. So in other words, once a particular DNA in a particular cell has been methylated in some way, then the cells which are produced by division of that cell will get this effect. And people say it's uh, that that, is important both in how, whether a particular, so all the cells in our body, the, whatever it is, 100 trillion or so cells in our bodies, um, they all have the same basic underlying DNA code, but different cells turn into different things. They might turn into a hair cell or a kidney cell or a heart cell. Um, and the specification of, uh, and it does that by reading a different part of the DNA program and producing different proteins from that. But the specification of what it should read may very well be somewhat related to this, this methylation idea of attaching these extra pieces to bases in the, in the uh, DNA sequence. And so things can go wrong. Those sort of methylations can be attached too much, too little, and it's uh, somewhat, it seems to be the case that that's at least correlated with the emergence of cancers in, in our cells and, and essentially what ultimately what tumors are is unconstrained growth of cells. Normally when we grow, um, it's not true for all kinds of, all kinds of animals and plants. Uh, when we grow, we only want to grow to a certain size and then we stop. We get, you know, at, at uh, some age in our late teens or whatever, we stop growing. If we were redwood trees, 
who just keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, or sometimes a fish just keep growing all of their lives. And they keep adding more tissue, they keep getting their bones, keep on getting longer if they're, if they're things like fish, whatever else. But we don't do that. And so that means that, that if something, but when what can happen is that a, a tumor, which is sort of a more primitive form of life that doesn't have this, res, this restraint that causes it to stop growing when it gets to sort of full size, if we get something which is a tumor, it will just keep growing and keep growing. And that's really bad because eventually it will kind of take over resources that we need and start strangling kind of organs that are important to us and, and things like this. So the question is, how does that come to happen? And uh, quite possibly, I, I mean, in the end, when you look at tumors, they tend to have really messed up genetics. So, you know, you have the ordinary DNA sequence and we have the ordinary number of chromosomes, but often if you take a tumor cell and you look at what is its genetics, it'll be all messed up. It'll have the wrong number of chromosomes. It'll have all kinds of modifications to genes, things like this. Uh, it also will have a complicated and different pattern of methylation, different from the one that's seen in ordinary cells. And actually there's some new tests that exist for sort of detecting the emergence of, of cancer anywhere in the body, so-called liquid biopsies, where you just take a blood sample and then you measure the methylation of the DNA of a bunch of cells, and then you see whether that pattern uh, agrees with what you would expect from ordinary tissue or whether it's something bad and weird. So, but the emergence of, of how does sort of cancer take hold, and that's one of the things that causes us to, to die, um, and uh, you know, how does that take hold? Um, what causes that to happen as we get older? Not really known. Um, the uh, a thing that is pretty likely is that our immune system will recognize when there's a cancer cell and zap it. And even if a little, you know, a few cells go haywire, that our immune system will be able to kill those off just as it can kill off bacteria or cells infected with viruses that we get. The reason it's difficult for the immune system to zap cancer cells is because the immune system is usually operating looking for cells uh, or other proteins that are not things that are part of us in our kind of, uh, well, in our, in our younger years before about teenage uh, time, our immune system is being kind of trained to notice which, which, which proteins, which uh, sequences of base pairs and so on are things which are uh, which are which are us sequences. So for example, there are six billion base pairs in the whole human genome. And if you look at, I don't know, a sequence of, I don't know, 15 of those base pairs, even at that level, it's possible to tell, is this a sequence of 15 base pairs that could be part of me, or is it something that, no, that isn't a possible length 15 sequence that's part of me, that's part of my six billion base pair sequence. Um, but would have to be some foreign thing, a virus or, or some other kind of thing. And so we learn that in our early life, so to speak. Uh, we learn to distinguish self from non-self when it comes to these base pair sequences and so on. And so the thing that happens with, with cancer, for example, is that there's an evasion of that, um, of that mechanism because the cancer cells really have the same fundamental DNA that we do, They've just been modified in some way, 
um, but in a way that doesn't uh, that potentially evades the immune system. Now, I, I mentioned that the cancer cells do change their genetics. So that kind of suggests that there is a way to recognize that um, and to have the immune system respond to them. But it's not really known, I think, uh, what causes our built-in immune system to not be able to successfully mount an attack on things like tumor cells. Actually, the messenger RNA technology that was used for the vaccines for, for COVID, um, that was, had been being developed for, for quite a while for the purpose of making kind of custom vaccines, which would uh, sort of enhance the immune system when tumors appeared in people. So the idea would be you kind of sequence the tumor, you get the find the base pair sequence, the DNA for the tumor, and you say, you figure out, oh, this is a thing which if only the immune system knew to attack that, it would get rid of this and it will be good. And so the idea was to kind of be able to create these sort of custom vaccines that would attack tumor cells. And no doubt after this, um, uh, uh, perhaps some, uh, well, let's just say the huge public health experiment of vaccinating a billion people um, with or, or whatever it is now um, with these mRNA vaccines, now that we kind of know what happens when you do that, um, it seems uh, it's something which one can make use of the same technology to do things with, for example, uh, tumors, and that's, that's kind of interesting. But in general, the question I mentioned that the, the probability of dying for humans increases exponentially with age, roughly, um, up to age 100 and something, um, and the, the longest uh, humans have been recorded to live is around 125 years. Um, and there's sort of the question of, of how that will develop over time and whether that lifespan can be extended, and if so, how. And I think one thing, if you look at the uh, life expectancy, uh, is always a, you have to say life expectancy at what age? It's like the time when you're born, there are all sorts of things that can go wrong in the first year of life. There are all kinds of genetic mistakes that can exist and things like that that will be bad news in the first year of life. If you make it through that, make it through the first few years, then the probability of dying in a given year goes, I think it's a minimum um, in the uh, maybe late teens, early 20s, things like that. Humans, us humans are pretty robust at those ages. And then it starts, starts going up. But uh, the, the question of life expectancy, you have to decide how old were you when you asked, what was the average number of years that you were going to live? So there's life expectancy at birth, there's life expectancy at age 10, for example. The life expectancy at age 10 is larger than the life expectancy at birth because at birth, there's some chance that there will be something horribly wrong, which will not let you live beyond age you know, one or two or whatever. Um, so in any case, the, the life expectancy at birth for in many countries like the US has been progressively growing for, for a long time, for 50 years maybe or more. And in fact, if you look at the curve, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of years, but I don't think it will be much affected by, by things that have been going on. The, um, the life expectancy is going up by about one third of a year per year. So uh, between you know, 1960 and now, um, the life expectancy has gone up by, let's say, um, you know, well, that would suggest if it's one third of a year per year, that would be 20 years. I'm not sure if that's quite right, but I think that sounds, sounds about right. And one question is, well, why has that happened? 
And I think the number one reason is because particular diseases that killed people have been uh, much, um, if not solved, they've been greatly uh, reduced in, um, of importance. And the most important one is cardiovascular, heart diseases of various kinds, um, all sorts of uh, heart surgery and, and heart enhancement and pacemakers and all this kind of thing, things which help the heart just keep on beating and, and uh, supplying blood in the right way, um, those things have become much better over the years and much more is known about them, much more is known about what kinds of things are risks for heart disease and so on. There's much more known about being able to uh, do imaging, whether it's with uh, various kinds of X-ray imaging or MRI or um, uh, ultrasound and so on that tell you whether there's something wrong and whether you need to fix it. But in general, the, it is, uh, it's, you know, if we say, well, how are you going to extend sort of human lifespan? Um, the, you know, one thing that's the case is that there are many different kinds of things that can go wrong. There are maybe 100,000 diseases that have been catalogued and they're not all completely distinct but and not all of them can kill you, so to speak. Uh, but you know, there's sort of the question of, of how do you how do you sort of fix each individual one of these things? And let's say you fix the big ones, the most important ones, that will have an effect. For example, uh, you know, fixing a lot of stuff to do with heart disease, um, you're still left with things to do with cancer and so on as a quite separate uh, branch that you then have to go and fix. And so there's sort of a question of, can you extend the human lifespan by just going in and fixing individual diseases? And the answer is yes, you can get a long way. And, and that's why the life expectancy has been going up in the past 50 years or so um, uh, as a result of fixing particular kinds of diseases. Now, you know, there will probably always be a very long tail of things that can go wrong. We kind of have learned that from looking at a quite different kind of system, which is software, where software, like us humans, is a very complicated, can be a very complicated system, many different subsystems and many different pieces and so on. And we can ask the question, can we, have we found all the bugs in that piece of software? And the answer will, will typically be no, we haven't. But many of those bugs just aren't very important and aren't bugs that will cause the software to crash, so to speak, very often. And so that's it's sort of the same thing with humans. Now, there are different kinds of more systemic sorts of things which uh, uh, make for sort of uh, make humans live longer. There have been a variety of experiments that have been done on uh, a variety of tiny, tiny critters um, that look at different kinds of uh, biochemical pathways, different kinds of, of processes that go on in those creatures. There's one to do with the, um, uh, it's to do with insulin processing and the cert uh, family of, of genes and proteins. Um, these have to do with the way that uh, metabolism works, the way that energy, um, the way that we produce energy. When we eat food, um, we have glucose that comes from the food. We kind of burn the glucose to make energy. And that's what causes us to be able to sort of bounce around and do all the things we do. And there are some pathways associated with that and associated with some of the some of the chemicals like insulin that are used as part of that metabolism process. Um, and there's some evidence that changing those pathways 
um, will extend lifespan. And I think that's been done, I think maybe has been done with rats by now, I'm not sure. Not sure up to what level. I mean, the original creatures for which this was found were tiny little worm-like creatures. Um, and uh, whether those kinds of discoveries extend to higher organisms, not clear, because as I mentioned, there are organisms where their sort of longevity profile is completely different from, from things like humans. So there's this kind of idea that, um, uh, that by modifying these genes, one could increase lifespan. It's not completely known why that would increase lifespan, but it's something that has empirically been seen, at least for some lower organisms. Um, now, there are all kinds of sort of theories that come up about sort of uh, what increases lifespan. I mean, one popular one was a caloric restriction, just eat less. I think the evidence on that is not terribly strong. Um, I think that at various times people have said, oh yeah, yeah, that's really going to make people live longer. I, I don't think there's great evidence for that. Um, and the, the more detailed experiments have been, uh, I think, not, not very convincing. And they're also uh, one of the sort of downsides is it could be, well, yes, you can be a critter that uh, sort of eats less, does less, is kind of in a semi-hibernating state all the time. You can say, well, yes, I can live longer, but I'm going to be like like a uh, like a, a cold-blooded animal, not in you know in the cold when the animal just sort of grinds to a halt and um, and and does very little. I mean, when when it's basically hibernating. So if you want to be a hibernating human, uh, that might be one path, and you might live longer, but in hibernation effectively, which probably isn't such a such a big win. But there are a variety of these ideas that come up with some frequency of sort of these biochemical pathways that might be kind of the things that are just overall clocks for us humans that just sort of say as a result of the way that we've evolved, oh, you should, uh, you know, don't live too long, it's bad for the species type thing. And if we could switch off those clocks and have us be able to be, uh, you know, um, energetic for, for longer, well, it would be certainly a win for the individual. I think some of those clocks are associated with the immune system and with the fact that uh, potentially our immune system gets weaker and weaker as we get older. Whether that's always the case or not is just not known. Um, and I think the general, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because people come up with all these elaborate medical ideas about sort of how to get greater longevity. And, and, and some of them are, are significant, but an awful lot of them come down to a sort of lead a healthy life type thing, um, you know, eat sensibly, exercise, sleep enough, these kinds of things. Um, I think one which has actually been uh, somewhat neglected in uh, for some time is the sleep enough type kind of idea. Um, and it's turning out that all kinds of, of terrible maladies can occur if, you, uh, if you're, uh, you know, if you're always short of sleep, so to speak. So, I mean, those are, it's the, the state of research on kind of longevity and aging, sort of interesting because there are fields of science where people just say, oh, that's not a worthwhile thing to study. And 30 years ago, that's what people were typically saying about aging and longevity. It's like, you'll never figure out anything. It's not worth studying. Now, there's increasing interest and increasing amounts of effort being put into doing that. One of the really weird problems, particularly in the US system, is if you make a drug, some medical intervention of some kind, then 
The question is, how does that get when, if somebody wants to get that drug, who pays for that? And in the US particularly, there's this idea of medical insurance and much of the time, things are not being paid directly by the person who's getting that medicine. They're being paid by some insurance company or some other uh, whole sort of uh, system that's dealing with that. And the problem is that that whole system is set up to say, if you're sick, we'll pay for you to be made better. And that means that, that what that actually turns into is every different disease has an ICD code, International Classification of Diseases, I think that stands for ICD-9 or ICD-10 code. It's this big directory of all these different diseases, and every disease gets one of those. And so you can say, oh, I've got this disease. It's ICD code such and such. And then the medical insurance company will say, okay, we pay X amount for fixing that disease. Okay, that's all good. The problem is nobody thinks that aging as such is a disease. It's not some misfortune that happens. It's something that happens to everybody. And so it's been a sort of a long running issue that there's no uh, code for aging. There's nothing that says that's a disease and medical insurance will pay to get it fixed. So that's been that bizarre little bureaucratic wrinkle has been something that has slowed down research in this area quite a bit. But one sort of hopes that, uh, I don't know, for me as, a, as a, an increasingly ancient person, I kind of uh, hope that that um, kind of research is, um, is done as quickly as possible. But, um, you know, what will it really look like? I think that there are likely to be some sort of molecular scale things that are particularly enhancing the immune system. Because I think the immune system is the big kind of fixer of things in our bodies in general. And uh, for example, things that go wrong include cells that have just become too old. And you know, the immune system should clean those cells out. But it's not clear that's really happening when one gets older. One's immune system may have a less aggressive point of view about what, what kind of cells should be cleaned out. And so quite a lot of sort of what one might look at has to do with enhancing the immune system and so on. But there are other kinds of things, as I say, fixing particular organs that break, being able to make artificial organs. Um, and that's something that increasingly seems likely that it's possible to make artificial organs. There are a lot of weird things that happen in us and that are kind of hard to, uh, to deal with. For, for example, well... Uh, let's say that, you know, your heart muscle is failing in some way. You might say, well, how are you going to fix that? Oh, you've got to put in more heart muscle. But actually, there's some evidence that if you start off with cells that were like the cells that from which we all started growing, the single cell from that um, we start replicating from, a so-called stem cell um, or a pluripotent stem cell, a stem cell that has many potentialities for what it will become, that if you take one of those cells and you just generally put it in the direction of the, of the heart, that what will happen is that it will go there and it will suddenly say, oh, I'm in, you know, I'm, you know, put in the, in, the, in the area where there's heart muscle, I should be a heart muscle cell, and it will then become a heart muscle cell and, uh, and potentially supplement the cells that were already there. So there are a bunch of kinds of ideas like that, which kind of on the face of it sound like they couldn't possibly work. 
but it seems like there's a, a, a likelihood that they will work for reasons that I don't think we fully understand from a biology point of view. But so that's that's kind of a um, uh, the way that those things might work is, uh, you know, they can have, oh, let's replace this organ with something that is an engineered thing, an artificial whatever it is. Um, different organs, we know how to make artificial versions of those. In some cases, we don't need to make a whole artificial organ because the whole purpose of the organ is to produce some particular chemical and we can just eat a pill that is that chemical once a day and it will serve the same function as that particular uh, organ. In some cases, more complicated, where you have to produce the chemical in response to something that's going on in the body, then it's more complicated and it requires medical devices and things like that, rather than just eat a pill once a day kind of thing. But um, uh, you know, there's some organs where that clearly isn't what's happening and where there's a sort of ongoing need for the function of that organ, whether it's the heart pumping blood or the kidneys um, clearing gunk out of the blood and so on. Um, and uh, so there's sort of the question of, of, can one make engineered versions of these things? And first question is, can one make them be engineered to work in the first place? And the second question is, can one set them up to be engineered and installable in the body in a way that can be connected to all the systems that are already there? And, and so for example, for, for hearts, for instance, you would think, well, it's just a pump. You should be able to pump blood but it's much harder than you think because blood has this feature that is sort of a good feature generally for us, which is that it coagulates, it forms clots. And so if blood stops flowing, it will start, um, it'll start to make this kind of fibrous uh, uh, connection between cells and eventually that will turn into a blood clot. And uh, you know, if we've cut ourselves, for example, the blood will stop flowing and it will form this, um, uh, this clot, which will eventually allow the, the, the skin and other things to regenerate. But um, uh, the problem is that if ever the blood flow slows down somewhere, it will tend to clot. And if you're making sort of a pump-like heart, um, it's very non-trivial thing to arrange that there's always enough flow of blood that nothing like that happens. There's no point where the thing sort of comes to a halt, stagnates, and can start to form a clot. So there, it's a tricky thing to, uh, uh, to build things that sort of fit into our bodies. My, my guess is that it will be a lot easier when we understand how to do things at a molecular scale. Some of the new kinds of, uh, the things where, uh, sort of the, the general spectrum of, of things one could do, one is you have a device, like you know, a pump that's pumping something and you have it either external to your body and it's just pumping things through some catheter or it's, or it's something actually um, installed, so to speak, in the body. That's one level. Kind of at the other end is drugs, where one's dealing with a particular drug molecule that has a particular shape and attaches to molecules that are part of us, like proteins, for example, and causes those proteins to be able to function better or, or blocks their function or whatever else. But it's doing that at a molecular scale. There's kind of an intermediate form of uh, medical intervention, which is at the level of things the size of little cells, for example. And, and for example, these vaccines that, that have just been used, they have these lipid nanoparticles, which are kind of like microscopic cells that are being used to deliver, uh, to, to get it, actually they get ingested inside our cells uh, to then deliver this, this RNA um, uh, vaccine. But there are other kinds of things where you can have a cell that um, uh, sort of uh, has a special purpose cell 
that is not a cell just like the ones we have, but an engineered cell-like thing that can then get used to, uh, uh, to have medical effects. So those are a few kinds of uh, approaches. Um, I think, um, uh, well, there's the Eli who asked this question, asks um, um, about computational irreducibility and um, the difficulty of solving problems for biology. I, you know, our experience with programming programs and the fact you never know if you've got all the bugs, that's not just a practical human limitation, that's a theoretical limitation. And it's also probably a theoretical limitation on living systems, that if you want a living system to be kind of multifunctional, to be able to do all the kinds of different things that living systems can do, that it's sort of an inevitable feature of having a system that has that sort of multifunctional character, that it is also, uh, it will have an infinite tail of possible bugs, and it will be impossible to sort of go down and, and fix every one of those bugs. So that in a sense, perhaps, and I, well, I don't know if this is really the case, but it's something one might imagine that uh, the, you know, if the, if the almost definition of life is something to do with being very multifunctional and being able to sort of lock into sort of the sophisticated computations that can be done, that an inevitable consequence of that is that it must be that you won't be able to fix all the bugs and have the thing live forever, so to speak. I don't know if that's the case but it's a, a plausible possibility, depending on what we really mean by, by life and what, we, and what happens with sort of this, this computational aspect of it. Um, the, um, the question of uh, um, would it be better for lifespans to be longer? I certainly think so. Um, I think that it is the case that as there's more to learn in the world, um, uh, that, uh, uh, that kind of um, the more time one has to learn that stuff, um, and then make use of what one's learnt, the better off. I mean, in other words, if, if it was the case that you could learn everything you needed to learn by the time you're 12 years old, then um, in a sense, you get to have, you know, if the life expectancy is 40, at least you get to have, uh, you know, um, close to 30 years to make use of the things you've learnt. But if it takes until the age of 30 for you to learn the stuff you need to learn, or, or even longer than that, then you kind of have to extend the lifespan to even be able to make use of that, or people are spending their whole lives just learning things uh, without being able to do anything with what they've learned. But, you know, I think that the, um, uh, it's, it's unclear, you know, eventually I am quite certain that effective human immortality will be achieved. I'm quite certain that eventually we will understand enough about molecular biology, enough about the way that biology works in general, that it will be possible to do that. And, and what will happen is typically, uh, you know, one of the things that happens in general in making things work better is to know what's going on in the thing so that you know what there is to fix. There are two big examples in, in kind of technological history that come to mind. One is airplanes and the other is general anesthesia. So with airplanes, it used to be the case that it was, the, you know, a decent fraction of the time, there would be plane crashes being reported. Plane crashes have become very rare, you know, one in millions of flights. Um, and why is that? The number one reason is that pilots and people maintaining planes just know more about what the state of a plane is. You know, is there a crack somewhere in the, in the metal of the wings? 
is there something that went wrong when the plane took off that should cause one to just go back around and, and land at the same airport again, rather than going across the Atlantic or something. Um, these are things where there is increasing the sensors and measuring devices are getting progressively better. It's becoming progressively easier to know what the state of the plane is, so to speak, and therefore to not try flying the plane when something is horribly wrong with it. Um, whereas in the past, when we're sort of blind to those things, it's like you don't know there's something wrong until it bites you kind of thing. I think the same thing is true of, of medical things like general anesthesia, where again, it's kind of like, uh, if you could monitor all these things about, you know, is the patient's blood pressure doing this or, or, or that or the other, um, you know, if you can monitor those things, if you know something was wrong, is wrong, it's probably not so hard to fix it. But if you don't know it's wrong until something terrible happens, um, then you can't fix it. And I believe those are two examples where the, the reliability has dramatically increased over the course of many decades. And so one wonders about the same kind of thing with medicine, and I tend to think this is the case, that the more one can measure, the more one can kind of uh, um, have, uh, be able to do the right thing to avoid, for example, things getting much worse. So for example, uh, often in medicine, um, you kind of don't know something is wrong until your body really, until something starts to hurt or you, or you have some obvious symptom but yet something was developing that was wrong. And that could have been detected by some method that was not uh, something where you had to feel it, so to speak, where it's some device, some test that's detecting these things without it relying on kind of your brain to have its sort of built-in system that detects, oh, there's pain, uh, which pain is kind of a sign. It's kind of the error condition for us humans. It's saying there's something wrong and, and, and you know, something is telling your brain that there's something wrong. And, and sometimes if, if, it's, uh, if there's sort of chronic pain where it's like, well, I know there's something wrong. You don't need to keep on telling me that. Um, that's a difficult thing that in a sense, ultimately, if you could kind of convince your brain to just stop giving you that alert all the time, it, it would probably be better for you. But in any case, the, um, I tend to think that one of the things which is going to and, and has led to sort of the, the greatest increase of sort of medical performance will tend to be just uh, earlier detection and more measurement of things. And there are some sort of uh, thresholds in that. For example, I mentioned kind of liquid biopsies and kind of one's blood has an awful lot of information about what's going on in one. One of the things about, about us humans is that um, all sorts of fluids like blood and saliva and things like this, there are all these cells and all these things that just get sort of dumped into them. And so, you know, for example, in the case of, oh, I don't know, the, you know, the fact that it's possible to do a COVID test by just, you know, uh, scraping a little bit of um, uh, a little swab against, you know, the inside of your nose, it's like, well, it could be the case that you know, there's COVID viruses somewhere in your body, but it doesn't kind of get out and get exposed in that way. But one thing that's very convenient for medical purposes is that a lot of, uh, a lot of things that go wrong, um, that, so there's enough mixing of different cells and so on in the body that uh, you kind of can see a trace of those things, for example, in the blood. Um, and so uh, one of the things that's been, a, I don't know how many, um, you know, there are millions of different kinds of, of chemicals and molecules and all this kind of thing in our blood. 
And when you, if you kind of pick them up and can detect them and measure them, that gives you huge amounts of information about what's going on inside the body. One of the things that's been kind of a long time, uh, well, goal, I mean, you know, you can go and get a blood test and somebody will stick a needle in your arm and pull out some blood and then start, send it to some machine. And then the machine, there are a variety of different methods for measuring uh, levels of different chemicals in your blood. Um, many of them are so-called assays that will try and see, for example, um, if you take out uh, the molecules in your blood, do those molecules, uh, how well do they stick to some particular thing that's been constructed, which is very sticky for molecules with exactly this form and not sticky for other molecules. That's one type of approach to figuring out whether there is that kind of molecule and how much of it there is in your blood. Some other kinds of things like, I don't know, if you just want to know how many red blood cells, how many white blood cells do you have in a particular volume of blood, you're literally, there, there's devices that just use essentially vision systems to literally count the number of cells of different types and what shapes they are and all those kinds of things. But in any case, the, that's kind of, you, you pull out some blood and you send it off to a machine and you do these things, but a kind of long-term goal is to have something where you can just, you know, have it in your, in your wristwatch or something, you have a sensor that's just telling you what's in your blood. Now, right now, uh, many people have, uh, you know, some such sensors, um, a typical, you know, exercise watch or something kind eyewear, you can, um, uh, it's, it has a little sensor, it has that green flashing thing underneath. That green flashing thing is flashing essentially laser light into, well, it's, it's an LED actually, it's just, it's, it's flashing that light and it's, it's trying to see how much of that light is reflected and how much is absorbed by, your, by you, by your arm or whatever. But what it's really paying attention to is the flow of blood under, uh, um, in, in your veins and so on underneath, um, uh, underneath that sensor. And so what is it doing? Well, for example, it can measure heart rate by the fact that when there's every heartbeat you're pushing oxygenated blood uh, through arteries and so on. And the oxygenated blood is a slightly different color than the unoxygenated blood. And so when that, that light, uh, there's slightly more light absorbed, reflected, whatever, um, and you can detect the fact that there's a, a slightly different, you're a slightly different color. Every time your heart beats, you're very, you know, just for that second or whatever it is, you're a slightly different color. There's even, um, apps where you can just look with a camera image and you can figure out what somebody's heart rate is by just looking at a fast kind of movie of that person and just seeing, you know, oh, every movie frame is a slight change of the color of the person. They get slightly redder or something every time the oxygenated blood is pumped through in, in one heartbeat. So that's a so-called PPG sensor that measures heart rate. Um, and uh, it also can measure the amount of oxygen in your blood. That's how a pulse oximeter works, for example. It's measuring essentially the color of, of the blood and therefore and thereby measuring how much oxygen has been captured by the hemoglobin in your red blood cells. So those are cases where you're measuring something just from the outside, just from flashing a light outside and measuring what comes back. You're measuring something about the, the chemicals effectively in the blood. But the thing that's been kind of a, a goal for a long time in medical sensors is to have something where you can 
measure not just, let's say, oxygen level, but the levels of, let's say, a million different chemicals and a million different kinds of things in your blood. And uh, there are some approaches to doing that that have never quite been made to work, but probably they eventually will be. The most prominent is when you shine a laser or you have some light, a photon of light, hits a molecule, it makes the molecule kind of jiggle around and kind of the, the, there's some energy, you're pumping energy into a molecule. And so the molecule will kind of flap around and but the molecule is kind of like it has a bunch of atoms that are at least roughly, it's as if they had all those atoms attached by springs. And so when the photon hits the molecule, you're kind of, uh, you know, you're kind of kicking that the assembly of, of atoms with springs together and the molecule will kind of blob around. And the molecule, depending on the shape of the molecule, that blobbing around will have a characteristically different set of frequencies associated with it. So there might be some piece that is there's sort of a heavy piece connected to a light piece here by this bridge, and the bridge will always sort of flop around in this particular way. So there's, a, there's an approach to seeing kind of how the laser light is absorbed and reflected that basically gives you information about all that kind of vibration of the molecule. And uh, depending on the frequency of vibration, different things will happen with that laser light, particularly as a phenomenon called Raman spectroscopy, where you get to kind of see the spectrum of kind of vibrations of the molecule. Now, if one could make that work kind of through the skin, et cetera, one could have a, a little watch or something that would immediately give one a readout of the levels of all these different kinds of chemicals. So probably, you know, every time you eat, the glucose level in your blood will go up because you're ingesting that sugar. And there are continuous glucose monitors that people with diabetes use, um, which have a little catheter that sticks underneath the skin and is measuring the, uh, the amount of glucose in not quite in a blood vessel, but in kind of the, the, the space near blood vessels. And so, but that's the kind of thing where in principle, if one can make this kind of uh, uh, light-based approach, one could have something where you don't have to stick anything under your skin. You can just from the outside measure the level, not just of glucose, but of lots of other kinds of things. And, and again, if we did that, we'd see all kinds of stuff go up and down. You know, we'd see glucose every time we eat, it will go up. We'd see things like uh, human growth hormone secreted at night. We'd see um, uh, just all kinds of different things going through the day, different kinds of, of hormones and chemicals secreted at different times. Some of our glands that secrete those things release, you know, they kind of build up for a day and then they suddenly release things. We'd see all kinds of things like that. And we progressively see different kinds of things that represent potential problems building up in our bodies. We'd see those potentially progressively building up. And that technology doesn't exist yet, but I think it eventually will. And that will be a different kind of way that we can help to sort of uh, 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 make it easier to, to make the right medical intervention. I mean, in general, with medicine, there's sort of a funny principle which is, you know, if something's wrong with you, it will either get better or it will get worse. And in a sense, what happens is there's something where you say, well, you know, my finger hurts slightly. Um, but, uh, and then, you know, and then it either will get worse. And if it gets worse, it will usually localize to, oh, there's a particular thing, or you'll figure out there's a particular thing that's causing that to happen, or it will get better. In which case, the typical approach is, why worry about it? 
it's better, so let's just go on and, and uh, uh, declare victory. Sometimes it's a good thing to try and go back and see, can we tell what actually happened? It's certainly true in the case of software, when errors just sort of seem to go away, um, it's, it's really a good thing, particularly if you're interested in making the software as good as possible, to say, well, what actually happened? Why did it go wrong in the first place? Even though, well, it seemed to have fixed itself. Um, but uh, you know, I think that one of, the, one of the real approaches to improving medicine is better sort of uh, early warning of things. Now, you know, it's sometimes a challenge because there may be a huge amount of data involved in that early warning and having good ways to process that is its own separate issue. Anyway, we could yak on about that for ages, but um, that was an attempt to, to answer that, that question. Erin um, asks, talking about our multi-computation paradigm, an approach to medicine based on that, will it detect disease first by observing visual systems or chemical systems or otherwise? You know, I think as a question of what can one detect about what's going on in us biochemically. And part of what that depends on is what matters biochemically. What matters to the operation of us as sort of molecular machines? And you might say all that matters is the concentration of this or that chemical. You know, how much of this do we have? How many molecules are of this type rather than some other type? But it might also be that there's some much more detailed pattern of this molecule tends to collide with that molecule that gets stuck on this membrane that does this, that gets transported along some fiber in each cell and so on, that it isn't really quite the story of just how much of each chemical is there. See, for example, in something like a liquid, the molecules in a liquid are all jiggling around. And so when chemical reactions occur, where if there are molecules that can react to it with each other, that can, can when they collide, they'll turn into a different kind of molecule, for example. In a liquid, you might assume that these molecules are so randomly bouncing around, it's randomly mixed. And eventually, depending on how many molecules there are, that's the only thing that would determine how long it would take on average for two molecules to, to collide and react. But if it isn't a liquid, if it's really something where there are all these tubes that are moving things around and there are these membranes that things are connecting to, or even within the liquid, that you can look at individual molecules that were produced and then they were sort of uh, around in the same area and then they interact with that same molecule again and so on, that the details of the sort of, at the molecular scale of what's happening, of the, the story of the molecules, of what happened, what was the sequence of events that happened to this molecule and so on, that may be important in molecular biology and biochemistry. It isn't known yet. Um, it's something which I suspect may be very important. If that's the case, it could be that we will be able to learn a spectacular amount about how our molecular biology is operating by measuring these, some of these kinds of things about the kind of dance of individual molecules, rather than what we're doing right now, which is to measure and these things like these Roman spectroscopy I was just talking about, are measuring total amounts of different kinds of chemicals in us. And it may be that what really matters much more is much more of this kind of sequence of events that take place among molecules and that requires a completely new kind of sensor, which, yes, I've been thinking about how you would make such a sensor, but I don't yet know. So, yes, it could be that once we have those kinds of sensors, it'll be like, oh, my gosh, we can see all these new things that are really important for the operation of molecular biology and where we can make a kind of an early warning of, oh, something is going wrong in this particular pathway of this particular sequence of molecules that are getting produced. Uh, 
well, there's a there's a question. There's something that come comes up here. Um, uh, there's a question about mortality curves and survival survival functions. Um, yes, there's a there's a bunch of math. There's a nice handling of this in Wolfram language of survival curves, mortality curves, and so on. Actually, Wolfram Alpha has this as well. Um, you can see all this um, um, uh, all this kind of um, um, you can see all these kinds of functions. What's the probability of dying in each successive year? What's the average time that people live to? What's the, um, you know, all these different distributions. And, and you can see those in, in Wolfram Alpha, for example, from standard data, um, you know, the, 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 that data, I mean, I, I, you know, there's kind of a, um, a grim thing in the US, it's called the death index. Um, and it's a public database of, um, uh, information about uh, all all deaths, and so that data allows one to to get pretty accurate mortality curves of what the lifespan is, how long, etc., etc., etc. So, but but then there's a bunch of math to do with, um, uh, and, and you can get it. It's it's tricky because it's like, um, for example, um, let's see, what is it called? Um, uh, dailies, D-A-L-Ys. Um, oh my gosh, I think it's disability adjusted life years. But there's a question of, of if you ask a question like, um, actually that that's that's not so relevant. There, there are all these questions about um, people who were, uh, who got this kind of drug, lived on average an extra 10 years, let's say. But it's very tricky sometimes to work that out because the people uh, might be 95 years old when they get the drug. And so they're likely to die from other causes having nothing to do with the effect of the drug. And so, so untangling all of that stuff relates to this whole uh, 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 survival curves and so on. As I say, Wolfram Language has a nice subsystem for handling those kinds of things that's integrated with lots of other capabilities. Uh, the same kind of thing occurs with reliability curves for reliability analysis for uh, devices out there in the world. I mean, you know, light bulbs, for example. Um, typical light bulb, a little bit like human lifespan, it typically lasts for a pretty long time. It's just fine. And then in a, over a short period of time, it tends to have a, a, a you know, it lives, it's, it's not 80 years, but it's, it's some amount of time. And then the probability of it failing goes up pretty rapidly uh, at the end of its kind of natural span. Um, and different kinds of systems have different kinds of survival curves. Um, different mechanical systems, et cetera, have different kinds of survival curves. And the, the, um, uh, the, the, a common thing, not for humans, but it's quoted for mechanical devices, is MTBF, mean time between failures. So, for example, if you have something like, I don't know, a, uh, a computer, and you say, what's its mean time between failures? You might say, well, on average, this computer will run for 20 years without failing. Any particular computer might fail earlier than that, but that's the average time. Um, and so there's, there's lots of interesting math around, around how that works. Uh, question, comment here from JR, would there be any justification for pursuing eternal life for humans if feasible? Um, you know, that's a complicated question of ethics. I kind of think that 
Uh, I think the answer is yes, but but then you know I'm here and exist and alive, and I I have a good time, and it's like I'd like to continue it as long as possible. Um, is it something where it would be uh, you know sort of societally disastrous? Well, it's a complicated story because you might think. So you know, one big advantage is that people who've been around longer know more, and maybe can figure out better what to do. You know, you probably don't want a, um, you know, I, I, I don't know whether you want a 15-year-old um, sort of uh, running the decision to um, whether to make some uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, whether to um, launch some military attack or something like this. I, certainly this has happened in history that um, it's been up to the 15-year-olds um, and, uh, you know, some have been like Alexander the Great, I don't know how old he was when he started conquering the known world, but he wasn't, he wasn't terribly old. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, well, he certainly did well. Whether the people that he um, conquered did well is, is a whole different question. But, um, uh, you know, I think that there are things where uh, the, you know, the longer people have been around, the more likely they are to not do crazy things. Now, on the other hand, uh, there tends to be a situation where people who said, I've been doing this all my life. It's a great way to do it. I'm never going to change. And so there are things where people, you know, if, if lifespans get longer, there's a certain degree of we're not going to change anything. Now, it could be that everything's great and there's no reason to change and the change is bad. But it could be that at least some people think things aren't great and they need to be changed. And so then it's a complicated trade off about kind of the. The, um, uh, the, the, the general tendency of people who have been around longer to say things shouldn't change and the general tendency of younger people to say, hey, we could change anything we want. Um, and that kind of uh, equilibrium, that though, not necessarily equilibrium, that tension is something which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. So I think it's, it's a complicated dis discussion, but I, I tend to think that, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously... Um, you know, death is the single greatest destroyer of information and knowledge. Um, I mean, it's kind of like people learn stuff and some of it they can pass on in, you know, the things they write, the live streams they do, whatever else it is. But a lot of it is kind of uh, locked into that brain. And um, it's something where um, uh, it's um, um, uh, the, um, um, uh, uh, you know, when the brain dies, you just lose that knowledge and you use, lose that, that skill and so on and so on. And, and that's the thing where as we gradually, you know, in our civilization, the thing that's really happened is that we have been gradually accumulating knowledge. And we've been doing that partly through sort of the, the teaching, the, the older uh, crowd teaches the younger crowd and that passes on knowledge and partly through a sort of external media of books, live streams, programs, whatever else it is. Um, but uh, so, so those are, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, perhaps it's just a personal preference, but I have to say, I think, um, I think human immortality would be, would be pretty cool. I think, you know, for somebody like me, who's got an almost infinite number of projects that I'd like to do, the longer I have to do it, the better. Now, I have to say, the flip side of that is, if you say, well, I imagine I'll live for a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years, it's like, why would I do anything today? There's no kind of sense of urgency. 
And I think it will be the case that when lifespans extend, or perhaps there's, there's effective immortality, that it does affect motivation. Because it's kind of like, you know, I want to do this stuff. So I want to do it while I can still do it, as opposed to, well, I get around to it sometime. You know, that, that thing I was planning to figure out, you know what, sometime in the next hundred years, I'm going to do it, maybe. Um, and so, you know, I think that the way that it will affect human motivation is kind of complicated. I think that uh, one of the things that has been a change is this idea of whether people sort of do only one thing in their lives. They have one career and they say, this is what I'm going to do. And that's my thing for my, for my life, so to speak. Or whether one expects more people to say, well, I'm going to do this for 30 years and I'm going to do this for another 30 years in the past when the length of a career was somewhat shorter, um, it was like, you're really not going to get, you know, it, it typically, when you get into doing something, in a first approximation, it takes a decade to become an expert in doing something. And, you know, there aren't that many decades that fit in a short human lifespan. And so if you're going to become, do something which you've got expert at doing, it's kind of like, uh, you can't switch that around too many times. But as if lifespans get much longer, then you can become an expert in a whole sequence of things and get to make use of that time, um, as opposed to saying, look, you know, I've only got 30 years to do all these things. And, um, you know, I, by the time I've invested 10 years in becoming an expert, I better have 20 years to actually use that expertise. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of a, an approach to that. Um, let's see, I just a couple more things here. Maybe I'll stick on this topic of... Um, uh, of kind of medicine and um, uh, and so on here. Um, uh, let's see. Well, Wobin comments that aging might be the condition that makes the most sense to study economically in terms of the money spent by health systems on problems related to it. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, that's why it's so weird that there's this kind of bureaucratic glitch because the fact is sort of the optimal thing in a sense is, uh, you know, given that there's only a finite lifespan, the best thing is for people to be super healthy until maybe the end of their lives. And the worst thing is they just get more and more unhealthy and they can kind of, you know, be, there's more and more medical stuff that has to be done and, and it's very expensive to do all those things. By the way, I mean, it's worth realizing that uh, you know, what's expensive and what's not is a complicated issue. You know, for example, one of the things that's sort of a big surprise, in a sense, in the world the last 50 years or so, is that consumer electronics is cheap. That is, you know, when I was first using computers, I used computers that were really expensive. I mean, computer I used for a while cost, well, in those days, probably a quarter million dollars. Probably today, it would be half a million, a million dollars. And you know, it was kind of a luxury computer that was very expensive. And, but now the computers that I use are pretty much consumer computers that many people can afford. And, you know, computers are fundamentally cheap. It's fundamentally cheap to make microprocessors. It's fundamentally cheap to make uh, telecommunications equipment, these kinds of things. By, by making it in such large numbers, and there's nothing sort of intrinsically expensive about it. Once you have the equipment to make it, you can just churn out more and more and more uh, microprocessors, for example, and each one is not terribly expensive. So the question is, when it comes to things in medicine, for example, there's this fact that 
there's things for whatever reason, a lot of medicine is quite expensive. And it's not clear it has to be that way. It could be the case. So for example, with drugs, often actually making the drug is not expensive. What's expensive is doing all the research and development to figure out what drug to make and doing all the tests on the drug and getting it approved and all these kinds of things. That cost might cost a billion dollars. And by the time that's cost a billion dollars, you've got to uh, you know, get back some of what you spent by actually selling that drug to people. But it might be that the incremental cost of making the drug is really very, very low. And that you know, with a different kind of economic system, you would end up with something where, yes, you know, everybody can have that particular thing. It might be the case you know, if there are, I don't know, nanobots that we can inject into ourselves that go and uh, serve as an artificial immune system or something, that it might be actually very cheap to produce those things, but it might have a huge health benefit for people. Um, and I think there's sort of a, a, it's an interesting issue whether the important things for, for health and medicine are expensive. I mean, it, uh, you know, certain kinds of surgery, for example, they require a lot of human skill, they require lots of people involved, they require lots of facilities and so on. But maybe, you know, maybe there's something where you just send in the bot army and it goes and assembles in the right place and it's all just a, a simple control mechanism and so on, and it doesn't cost very much. And, you know, I think sometimes, you know, I tend to think anecdotally, particularly in the US, I don't know, in all other countries, that the amount of kind of bureaucratic inefficiency in the medical system is just spectacularly large. And why that inefficiency exists is complicated. And I think that, you know, probably, uh, you know, this question of does medicine have to be expensive? And, or could it be the case that, you know, it might be that medicine can't help you, there's nothing known to solve that particular medical problem, but it could be that if there's a solution, then it is comparatively cheap to get that solution just as if there's something I can compute on a computer, it's fundamentally fairly cheap to get the computer and do that computation. So we just don't know how that's going to go for medicine. I have to say, I think that my, my own guess is that as more of medicine ends up being about molecular scale uh, machines and about essentially software, that it probably will drive down the, the cost curves in the same way as that's happened with consumer electronics. Um, the... Uh, Okay, so uh, there's comments here about uploading uh, human sort of consciousness into computers and that as a, as a mechanism for effective immortality. Um, the, that's a complicated issue. Uh, you know, I think that uh, it's kind of like if one is sort of able to sort of run the same computations as are running in our brains, you know, in some sense, the soul of a human in, in some uh, sort of, uh, uh, the, 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 is, is this pattern of, um, of computations that are happening in our brains. That's kind of the, the, the abstract, one could even say sort of uh, uh, immortal version of kind of um, uh, human existence is that kind of abstract pattern of computations that's running in our brains. And, where our memories are stored, in the case of our brains, our memories are stored in the particular details of our nerve cells. Some controversy actually about exactly how memories are stored in, in, in nerve cells, but, but they're stored somehow in nerve cells. And you know, imagine you could upload all of that stuff so it's just stored in computers. And then could 
we could have sort of the experience, the same experience that we have with brains, we could have through that uploaded consciousness and computers. And, and probably that could work. Um, I think that uh, there's sort of a question of what's it going to be like to live in this kind of uploaded, you know, you could call it metaverse type um, uh, environment. And, uh, and how's that going to, how's that going to go? You know, it's complicated. It's hard to know. I mean, a lot of the issues that we have in human society, they will be different in uploaded society, so to speak. So, for example, the, the very idea that we're all mortal, so to speak, we have only had a limited number of years, and what are we going to do with that time? And that's a driver for saying, I want to do stuff, or I can't be bothered, I'm just going to live out my life because it's only a finite amount of time. I, it's okay, I'm not going to be bored. I'm only going to be bored for, for a limited time. I'm not going to be bored for a million years. Um, so, and that's different if you are in a situation where there's effective immortality. There's also a bunch of issues with uh, clone, with, with kind of copying. You've got one version of a human mind. You say, well, I'm just going to make a copy of that human mind. You know, there's, there's me and there's copy one, two, three, four, five of me. And it's like, what would you, you know, how would you enjoy interacting with yourself? I don't know. It's, um, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. People who are identical twins might have had a little bit of experience like that. But... It's, a, it's sort of a question of what would it be like if there's a hundred of you and you hang out with lots of copies of you? Is that good? Is that bad? But those are different dynamics of sort of society. And, you know, a hundred copies of you that all shared the same memories up to now and then have started to diverge. What's that going to be like? There are lots of, lots of kinds of things that would be very different. And when it comes to, you know, is there a top dog in sort of in the virtual environment. And, you know, the top dog might be the one who's accumulated the largest amount of, you know, land, money, this, that, or the other. Um, and how's that going to play out when all of that stuff is kind of um, uh, very virtualized, so to speak? And, uh, and, you know, what's that kind of existence going to be like? And I think one of the things that is potentially a, from looked at from our vantage point today, the kind of, you know, the uploaded humans kind of playing video games for the rest of eternity looks like a pretty bad outcome. Looks like, gosh, that sounds really boring. But I have the feeling that once you're embedded in that process, it will seem as meaningful as the things we do today seem. I mean, you know, the sort of thought experiments go back a thousand years and say, what, um, what, would, what are the things that seem meaningful a thousand years ago? and look at the things we do today, and would we even understand from a thousand years ago, why are we doing some of the things we're doing today? They don't seem meaningful. And as we project forward and we're in the, you know, the virtual world metaverse type thing, and we're doing all these weird things where we're kind of you know, playing games where we clone ourselves and virtually clone ourselves, and then we take the clone and we do, I don't know, uh, we compete with the clone who's identical to us, and we see this and we see that. It's like, why are you doing this? We can't understand that from our vantage point today. But once one's embedded in that environment, it may seem like the most meaningful thing one can imagine. And, you know, it's, it's like saying, what is the ultimate meaning of what we do? And there isn't really an ultimate meaning to it. It's something where we have become used to a certain pattern of what we think is important, and no doubt that will evolve 
if we're in a different kind of situation and if we're sort of all uploaded, conscious uploaded, you know, minds, I have this uh, kind of image that I've talked about in the past of the, the box of a trillion souls of, um, of sort of a future of humanity and, and what that means. Um, there's a question here. Uh, let's see, where, where um, I was asked if you could live for 150 years, but you had to upload your brain to this metaverse and give up your real body. Would you upload your brain in that situation? Um, boy, these are, these are complicated questions because it's kind of like, um, you know, if that's where the action, if this, that's where everybody's in the uploaded world, it's kind of like if, if you're interested in hanging out with the humans, well, that's where you hang out with the humans and you could be the sole survivor of the, um, you know, the embodied human and all, all the fun stuff is going on in, in the box of a trillion souls, so to speak. Um, or a different situation. I, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think what will tend to be the case is that gradual things will be the things that feel most natural. That is, it, it, the sort of the sudden change from this to that will be very disorienting. And if there's a sort of gradual change from oh yeah, you gradually replace more parts of your body with with. Uh, uh, you know, technology and so on, you gradually replace more parts of your brain, you're gradually plugging into different parts of your brain. And, you know, I just saw a, a new invention that, um, uh, uh, is, is capable of, of sending signals to the brain by, by running essentially electrode arrays through, through, uh, um, through, through catheters, through blood vessels. Um, which means you don't have to like open up the brain to be able to to put electrodes to, to probe different parts of the brain or to send signals to different parts of the brain, and you know one can imagine all kinds of ways in which sort of one's gradually uh, going towards having more of your brain as being sort of outsourced to technology, and that feels like a more natural kind of progression of you know oh I'm you know like for me I have uh, uh, all my sort of data from the last. 30 years or more and, and beyond uh, kind of nicely digitally encoded so I can do searches for things and all that kind of thing. But right now I'm doing that by typing with my fingers and looking at a screen and seeing what the results are. I could imagine a situation where in addition to my own human memory, I have sort of immediate digital access to this much larger bank of memory. Or for example, if I wanted to do a mathematical computation you know, if I was directly connected to Wolfram language and Mathematica and so on, and I just had to think the computation and it would magically, the answer will be delivered into my brain rather than me having to type with my fingers and, and look at the answer, um, it would be, that would be sort of a progression towards something where more of my brain is, is outsourced to technology. And for example, some of that technology might say, uh, got, might have suggestions, you know, hey, you've been yakking on about this or that thing. What about mentioning this? Or, you know, here's something you said about that before. Or, you know, here's a thing, you know, this or that thing. And that begins to become much more entangled with your actual, uh, you know, decisions about what you do. You know, it, it's like, you know, you really don't want to eat that thing that looks kind of... Uh, looks kind of tasty in front of you, you know, you already ate far too much today type thing. And pretty soon you're, you're outsourcing more and more of your sort of thinking process to, uh, to the digital uh, area. 
Um, okay, there's one last comment here. Let's see. Um, Paul comments, uploading a copy of your brain into a computer means there are two of you, and computational irreducibility means the two are different from each other. Yeah, yeah, well, it's certainly the case that as soon as the brain, the uploaded brain starts operating with its different environment, it will do different things and it will learn different things from what we biologically with, you know, walking around with our eyes, you know, five foot something off the ground kind of, um, uh, kind of perceive of the universe. And yes, the, you know, when, if you make a hundred clones of yourself and they're all having different experiences, they will be different. They'll sort of become different over time. It's like, uh, and this is kind of the ultimate nature versus nurture question. You know, are we determined by our nature, by the genetics that we have and, and all those kinds of things and in what we eat, where we, those kinds of things are, or perhaps, uh, or, or more, more so by, by the sort of intrinsic genetics that we have, or are we determined by the nurture, the experiences that we have? And that's sort of the ultimate version of that. When you make the hundred clones of yourself, um, you know, in, in this virtual clones of yourself, what happens to each of those and, and how much are they affected by the, by the nurture of their experience, so to speak, rather than by the initial condition that they have. Um, William is asking, is bureaucratic inefficiency analogous to aging in biological systems? The system over time grinds to a halt and dies due to a buildup of systematic inefficiencies. Can we apply life extension to institutions? That's an interesting question. You know, I tend to think uh, bureaucracy is like viscosity and friction. It's like, it could be the case that uh, the world would immediately decide, you know, uh, let's do this or that thing, you know, immediately. It's like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, this kind of, um, this person is bad. This, um, this thing, you know, we should, uh, um, you know, put a new traffic light on this road whatever else it is, or we should um, uh, change what we teach about this or that in this way. But the way the world actually works, it adds a certain viscosity. It adds a certain sort of slow flow. So it adds a certain sort of friction to things to have bureaucracy. It's like, oh, well, you have to file that form and triplicates and you have to wait for this approval to happen and that to happen and so on. And that all takes a month. And so that, that, that rapid decision of let's just do this. It's like, no, it actually is going to take a month because this and that and the other thing needs to be done. Now, that's all good if you're trying to prevent crazy things from happening in the world. It's bad if you're trying to allow new things to happen in the world because that same viscosity that kind of prevents the crazy quick things happening also makes it really difficult to take that new thing that you really did want to change and sort of move it out of that area of just this very viscous kind of, um, you know, you can't get there from here. There's, there's, uh, there's a thousand forms you have to fill out to get from here to there. So I think it is the case that over time, uh, large institutional structures build up more and more bureaucracy. I know in, in, in uh, uh, our own company, my own company, um, it's been kind of amusing to me over the last 35 years, we've gradually built up different kinds of sort of bureaucracy. And, and occasionally, yes, you have to go in and cut out the bureaucracy. I remember years ago now, what um, uh, there, we discovered that there was a 14 step procedure for getting business cards. And you know, what did that involve? Well, it involved, you know, how many cards do you want? 
is the title that you're being given on the cards the right thing did you get your you know do you like the configuration of your name on the business card you know where are the business cards going to be shipped to i don't know i don't know what all the steps were but to you know eventually you realize that's just crazy that's just taking all this effort and you know the thing that gets bad is when kind of the bureaucracy is taking all the effort let me give you an example in a computer when the computer is running different programs one of the components of the operating system with your computer is a scheduler which says you know right now you should run this program you should be running your video conferencing program or or now oh no that doesn't need to run anymore you should be running the program that's doing your chat session or whatever and that scheduler is making decisions about what to run when so one thing that happened years ago in in a, one of the common operating systems is that people tried to add more and more cleverness to the scheduler until eventually it was taking 70% of the time that the computer had to just decide what to do next and only 30% of the time is spent actually doing anything and so that's something that can happen when you sort of over overbuild the kind of the structure around doing things that same thing happens in countries and with governments and so on that eventually the government gets so heavyweight that you know half the people in the country are working for the government sort of enabling the things that could actually happen to actually do things so i think this process of um uh sort of the the tendency to increase bureaucracy as the system gets more and more you know another reason why bureaucracy increases is something went wrong and so you say let's add in this new check to make sure that doesn't go wrong again and pretty soon you've added all these checks and you've built this giant bureaucracy um so that uh, um that that makes things run much more slowly and makes it much more difficult to make changes so it's an interesting question whether one could apply kind of uh um the sort of life extension i i would say that that bureaucracies rarely grind completely to a halt it's usually the case that even though you know there's now a two year wait to get this or that government approval for something it does eventually happen it isn't the case now you know you can have bureaucracies where effectively things die trying as they try and grind through the bureaucracy and lots of things that you want to have happen never happen for that reason but i don't think it's quite as dramatic um it can be kind of the i suppose it's the question of do you lead the healthy life uh you know you're you're alive but you're not very healthy and that can be the situation with bureaucracies that are too deep and too too kind of um, viscous and then the question is how do you simplify those things and that's what oh all kinds of different um it takes real effort it takes real leadership to to simplify these things and i know in our company for example you know i will occasionally try and hack out a piece of bureaucracy where it's like well there were all these steps and all these things but now we understand it better i'll give you an example um so one of the things i noticed is in when you're shipping things years ago uh like the air bills that you use to ship something by fedex or whatever else when fedex was young the air bills were very simple as fedex got a little older the air bills got more and more and more complicated they get more and more details on them of you know check the box if you're shipping live live specimens check the box if you're doing this they got more and more complicated and then somebody must have gone in and said this is way too complicated let's simplify it again 
and it got much simpler and it had sort of, I don't know how they've dealt with all these sort of special cases, but it's like, if any of these are true, check this box and you have to fill out a different form. But most of the time you don't have to do that. It's the same with user experience design. You know, you can end up with something where, oh, you've got to this screen. There are a hundred things you might do from this screen. And in principle, if you present all those hundred things, which gradually, originally there were five things, but then over time, more and more things got added as things you might do. And then you have a hundred things on the screen. It's like, I can't find anything anymore. And so then you have to go back and say, well, what can we do to simplify this? Can we make something where you can sort of get the most essential things and have kind of an, an escape valve to deal with the more complicated cases. And that's part of the sort of the, the design of user experience. But, but I would say this sort of retrofitting of simplified user experience, the, the removal, bureaucracy removal, yeah, it kind of reminds me of, of the removal of senescent cells, uh, aged cells in, in biological organisms. But I haven't really thought about whether sort of the ideas of, uh, most of the ideas for life extension are fairly specific to the way that humans and our biological medical systems work. So I'm not sure those are applicable, but kind of the general notion that even while it's running, you might do things to simplify the sort of bureaucratic load. Um, yes, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to think about and something where you could say, well, can we do this? You know, or is it locked in? Do we have this sort of constitution that locks in this giant bureaucracy? Or do we have kind of the wiggle room to say, well, we're going to change this and simplify the thing so that we can... Uh, allow the system to be more agile, so to speak. All right, well, lots of interesting questions here and more I can see saved up for next time. And I look forward to seeing you um, in another live stream. I think we'll be doing, um, on Wednesday we'll be doing, I'm not sure what, what phase we're in, it's either history of science and technology or Q&A about business innovation and managing life. It's one, one of the other of those. And the next Friday, I'll be doing another one of these science and technology Q&As. Okay, apparently um, this next week will be a, a history of science and technology Q&A on Wednesday. Um, and uh, we're also doing, uh, I'm also doing some other live streaming of other uh, uh, internal meetings and, uh, you know, check out the, um, the, what it's actually like to build software and so on and, and what my day job is um, if you're interested in, uh, in other live streams that we'll be doing. But okay, let's wrap up here for now. Thanks for joining me and see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.